Hello and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy and we're your co-hosts on the show. Displaced is a partnership between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and Vox Media. This is the podcast that you should listen to if you want to understand the global refugee crisis and humanitarian crises more broadly. Today, in our extensive tour of chief economists from UK aid ministries, we have got Rachel Glenister, who is the chief economist at the Department for International Development. Prior to taking on this role just a few months ago, Rachel was the executive director for the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, more commonly known as JPAL. JPAL is the organisation that has really revolutionised how we think about and deliver foreign assistance to reduce poverty and save lives, and is committed to ensuring that policy is informed by scientific evidence, and in particular, randomised control trials, which Grant is now if, going to explain, clearly. No, no, not even going to give that a shot. Come on, my, my so, mum, Grant, my mum, every time I talk to her, every so often, she goes, what the hell is a randomised control trial anyway? So come on, in 30 seconds. So randomized controlled trials are a way of studying the impact of a social program or a medicine, and it does that by randomly allocating a certain group of individuals to one condition in which they receive that program and another in which they are allocated to a, a version in which they don't. And what that allows you to do is with extreme confidence say and assess the causal impact of what a program was. Medicine is a perfect example of where this has happened. For anything that you take if you live in the United States or a European country, that medicine has actually been tested through a randomized control trial. And it's actually one of the really interesting parts about thinking about its application to foreign assistance. For the medicines that we take to save our lives, we demand that that's the standard of evidence. And for foreign assistance, you can make the argument that it's just as important to use that same type of standard. If you were to look back about 20 years ago in foreign aid, most of the programs and projects implemented lacked that exact rigorous gold standard evidence. And now aid is flush with RCTs, and Rachel's been a real part of pushing forward that revolution. It's important to note that RCTs are by no means the only way to assess programs, and Rachel would be the first one to say that the toolbox for understanding impact of what we do is, is broader than just that. But it's also importantly really revolutionized the way we think about scientific evidence-based policymaking. In this conversation, we get into Rachel's reflections on the randomization movement and the lessons learned now that we're two decades into that debate. We ask her what some of the most powerful insights are that she's taken away from two decades of RCTs and debate some of the most challenging criticisms about RCTs, particularly the fact that uh, these methods focus on smaller questions or issues rather than the most important questions about development, such as trade policy or governance. We get her advice on what researchers underestimate and don't understand about policymakers, as well as the other way around. What do policymakers underestimate and don't understand about researchers? And that's something she's grappling with right now in the aid ministry, trying to get research and policymakers to work together better. It's a really interesting conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Here's Rachel Glenister. Rachel Glenister, welcome to Displaced. Uh, it's great to join you here. Can you tell us the way that you think uh, academics who believe in randomization or randomistas 
really think about the world differently than the academics or, or more so the development practitioners that came beforehand? What's like the real insight in the shift in the way that they think about the world from people who have not necessarily seen this way of, of um, analyzing issues? So I would say there's been a much broader change. It's not just in development, but across economics in the last 10, 20 years to focus very much more on causation and being really careful about causation and distinguishing what causes what. So in the past, people um, have worried about causation, but um, there's also been a lot of work um, that looks at describing the world or, um, and in particular, non-academics do a lot of correlations. Uh, so they see you know, that women who are more educated have fewer children, and they might jump to, to assuming that because women who are more educated have fewer children, that being educated causes them to have fewer children. Now, that... Um, that's a you know attitude you find all over the the world. You see lots of you know studies in the newspapers saying, "Oh, don't eat chocolate because," or "Do eat chocolate because you know it causes all these great things, all these bad things." And and actually, all they're doing is pulling from correlations, and that's not actually a very reliable way to make policy or make decisions. Um, so, randomization is one of the tools that you can use to separate out correlations between things and causation. So in the case of, you know, the example I gave is whether education uh, reduces the number of children women have, there are programs that have improved the amount of um, education women have access to. They've, for example, given free school uniforms uh, to, to girls in some parts of the country or in some schools those girls have then had more education, and then you can follow up and see whether those girls end up having more children or less children. So randomization is a relatively convenient way to tease out those things because you can go in and change the one thing that you want to be able to measure, in this case, education, and see what the results are. It's not the only way that you do it, but it's a convenient way of, of, of being able to compare those people with you know, with one input, in this case, education, or without it. It's been a very heated debate over the last 10 years, which is now hopefully coming to an end and people yes. are uh, being more pragmatic. Why did it get so fierce? Is it just because economists like being hard on each other? So I think one... Um, it's difficult for me to, to answer that question because I never thought it should be fierce to begin with. Um, so you're asking me to look at the... Um, the attributes of, of people who are not me. Um, but one, one possible um, reason in the non-academic community, I would say, is that it, there is an evaluation community who are used to doing evaluations a certain way. And you come along and say, well, a lot of the techniques you're using are really just correlation and they don't really mean very much. Well, then you're attacking someone, a whole body of someone's work and they get pretty upset. So, you know, maybe we could have come in and said that with hindsight in a slightly softer way. Um, uh, but that was, that's one you know, group of people who would get upset. Another group is, I think, advocates who love to point to these correlations and say, see, you know, investment in 
um, in women's education is the most effective investment in development is a thing that you would hear regularly, people say. Chocolate is good for you. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then you point out that actually there's pretty much no evidence to behind that statement. People get a little upset because, you know, they've been saying it for a long time, they've made a career out of it. Um, I think also on the academic side, um, there was also some threat involved in the sense that, you know, people pointing out that maybe some of the previous studies that have been done weren't as solid uh, and people get defensive in that situation. I mean, we're an organisation that tries to be evidence-based uh, in our advocacy, but it actually makes for advocacy it's rather dull, doesn't it, with lots of caveats and not quite as spicy as um, proper advocacy organisations. Looking back at 10, 15 years of, of, of research, what do you think are the most powerful insights from the RCTs that have been done? Been done? I, I noticed that you've often said that you should think about RCTs less for the individual programmes that have come out, but more for the overall insights and lessons you can, you can glean. Right. So the whole field of behavioural economics, um, is a lot of that is grounded on the insights from randomised trials and is really fundamentally changed the way we think about human behaviour. Um, so things like understanding um, that people are really bad at preventative health and that small changes in pricing in, in preventative health can massively change behaviour is, I think, a really important insight. And it, um, and it applies to lots of other things. So the fact that people aren't going to invest in long-term, you know, things that will benefit them in the long-term, they will massively under-invest in things that will benefit them from the long time and that they're very sensitive to price or convenience. Like, it's not just price. It's also people won't walk far for to get clean water. Um, they, you know, they won't read things carefully if it's not for something that's in the short run. You know, we don't wash our hands, we don't eat properly. All of these things are related to the fact uh, to this behavioural insights that we're not investing appropriately either in health or education because the benefits are in the long run. And there are a whole range of specific interventions that you can do if you understand behavioural economics and the fact that we focus on the short run um, that can make programmes better. So that's a whole set of answers and a set of ways of understanding the world that I think are different and has come out of RCTs. It's not... It's a good example, though, also of how you combine RCTs with other evidence to get to the answer, right? We all, there's also a lot of descriptive evidence that we don't save enough, um, that we spend more on acute care and less on prevention. So it's a combination of good descriptive work, good theory, and good RCTs or good uh, impact evaluations. That's when you get breakthroughs, when you get all of those three things uh, working together and telling you a clear story, then you can move forward. That's really interesting. And so when you look back at your time as executive director of JPAL and your time in working in randomization, what was the thing that you believed when you started that role about randomization or about development that you fundamentally changed your mind on over the arc of that experience? Um, so, I mean, there were a lot of specific cases where I was working on a project and I got results that I completely didn't expect. And that, I mean, that's just the most fun as an academic you can have. It's your own research, you know, completely blows your mind and you think, wow, that was not what I expected. As long as it's for the positive rather than <laughs> wildly negative? Well, 
I think no. I think it's it's just as um, useful to learn that things don't work as to find mm. out that things do. I agree. It tends to be slightly more encouraging <laughs> when you get it's a bigger a party one. when it, when you find out something more positive. Yeah. So I mean, so here's something I've changed my mind about that I've studied, um, which is community driven development, mm-hmm. um, which is. Uh, an approach where you provide communities with some money to spend kind of as they would like, but you also set up structures around that to help them spend that money in a very inclusive way. So you have, you know, you set up a, a, you know, community meetings in a committee and they have to include women and they have to include youth and other disadvantaged groups. And you, the idea is that you teach people to be more inclusive as they spend this money and that will, uh, spill over into other ways that they they make decisions. Now, to be honest, I went in there somewhat skeptical about the effectiveness of community-driven development. But I also knew that a lot of, that most of the work that had been done on it previously, I didn't have much faith in. And so I think, you know, I thought we didn't really know what the impact was. Um, So we set up a big randomized trial of this in Sierra Leone post-war. And we got these results that showed uh, that that there were big improvements in public infrastructure in the communities that were given this money. There was no change to the inclusiveness of decision-making. So there was no change in social capital. Partly we found that social capital was really high there, so it was actually quite hard to improve it. but it was, but there wasn't any change from CDD, and that was you know, people got very upset about those results. And um, but I was actually quite encouraged by the amount of improvement in the physical infrastructure that you saw as a result of this money. So I, I was never, you know, I was couldn't understand why people were upset with that paper were saying, look, it has all these positive effects. It doesn't do this other thing, but you can't really, big, you know, this is a post-war economy, really difficult situation. Money is being handed out and things are improving. Great. Now we've just gone back seven years later and the infrastructure is still better and the economy is still better in the communities that, that got that money a long time ago. Now, that's, that really blew my mind, actually. So this is really interesting. Are you basically saying that the reason that those results surprised you is because you had low expectations? Yes. Yeah. You hand out money and you go back seven years later and those communities are better off. Absolutely. But this, this gets at one of the interesting things to me about randomized control trials is that it, uh, the way that it changes people's minds is a function of their prior beliefs. Yes. And so you could have a set of policymakers who are looking at CDD and they're expecting results that are going to change social inclusion, democratic participation, accountability structures, and they see your results and they're like profoundly disappointed. And on the other hand, from your perspective, you think this is extremely encouraging. And it's one of the ways in which I actually think that the conversation about randomized controlled trials and you know causal impact is much more complex because it's not just one straight story. It's about how those uh, impacts actually map on to whatever the collective beliefs are about what that should be doing. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that 
we had got into, and still are in, but hopefully it's a little bit better now, we had got into a very negative cycle where because claims did not have to be based on evidence, they could be extremely exaggerated and, you know, you couldn't call people on their claim. You know, they'd say, well, education, you know, has a massive impact on, on women's lives and it was, you know, nobody had a very good basis for that claim and so they could make as strong a claim as they liked. And then to be heard above the noise, the next group had to come in and make an even more exaggerated claim. And then you would make all these exaggerated claims and then people would go along and say, well, aid hasn't done any good because it hasn't completely tra transformed everybody's lives in, you know, two years flat. Well, no, it never was. That wasn't always completely unrealistic. So it's not the case that aid failed, it's that people over-promised. That's I mean, that, and, actually, and that actually relates to one of the criticisms of RCTs that I think is the most interesting, which is that um, RCTs are good at proving that small improvements make a difference, micro-interventions, but they don't necessarily tell you much about the big changes that um, explain development, like institutional formation, politics, market formation. But in a way, this is a bit like the conversation we've just been having. If you are fundamentally pessimistic <laughs> about uh, the chances of such grand change being catalyzed by external interventions, then frankly, you, you would not say that RCTs are problematic because they don't explain that larger developmental change. So I'm just interested though in your view on that particular critique of, of RCTs and whether there are any others that you think um, resonate for you particularly and feel are worth um, highlighting. Okay, so I fundamentally disagree with the idea that randomized trials can only look at small questions. Um, I, you know, you mentioned, for example, well, what about institutions? And well, my other work in Sierra Leone is how do you change politics in Sierra Leone? How do you improve the accountability of politicians? And we've shown that information will change how people vote even in an extremely ethnically based voting system, i.e. the vast majority of people in Sierra Leone vote based, uh, vote in line with the party that is associated with their ethnicity. Uh, and everyone assumes, therefore, including in Sierra Leone, where I've been interviewed on, you know, uh, Good Morning Sierra Leone, and they say, but it can't possibly be true. We know everybody votes on ethnicity. And I'm like, no, 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 we've proved that actually people will change how they vote. If you give them information, they just don't have anything else to go on at the moment, so they might as well go on ethnicity. And they're then having an existential crisis about their new show in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, it's, so that, I think, is answering it is at least asking a very fundamental question about politics and institutions. Now, it's true that we are addressing it through a very specific question. So the issue is, you, in a sense, you have to string together the answers from many very specific questions and answers to build up a bigger picture of what's going on to answer these really fundamental problems. So that's, it's a, it's a get your building blocks right, put them together in a very careful way, and you will build up a bigger story um, about what's going on. Education is a really clear example of this, right? There's been a lot of randomized trials. And again, you say randomized trials, I say careful impact evaluations, because it's not just about mm -hmm. randomized trials, right? 
there's been a series... We, you should probably just quickly explain that difference. Uh, so there are, there are other techniques that you can use to separate out correlation and causation. That randomization is a convenient, relatively straightforward one. There are other methods out there. I'm not going to... We could take an hour going through all of them. But so we can... What we can do is build up from a series of studies about education to understand the political economy and the kind of fundamental blocks to why children aren't learning in schools. And if, if you talk to most of the academics who've worked on education over the last several years, they will have a very similar story that the problem is about that education systems are designed to deliver for the top 5% of the population or the top small percent of the population and not for the majority. And therefore, the curricula is well above the level that children are at. And children can't learn when the curricula is far too high above them. And most of the projects that people have evaluated that have been successful are all around making sure that the teaching is at the level of the child. And there are all sorts of different ways to do that. There's computer-assisted learning, there's remedial education, there's changing the curricula. But what the commonality across all of these studies is that there's, they better match the child and uh, the teacher. So those are, very, those are very specific individual studies, but from that and from good descriptive data, you build up a picture that tells you these really fundamental political economy problems about education systems. So, you know, sector by sector, you build up this picture. So let me, let me just push back on this for a quick second, because I think it's one of the things that I think about a lot and that's written about a lot in terms of how we spend um, development dollars and, and development effort more broadly. Um, and to give one example on this, I think trade policy is a particular one where uh, I think there's a lot of um, endorsement of progressive trade policies being able to lift many people out of the poor. Um, but it's really hard to run impact evaluations on trade policies. There's oftentimes not multiple units, which is one of the features that you need for randomized controlled trials. Um, there's not a lot of, you know, exogenous variation or, you know, it, uh, you know, something that basically allows you to kind of cleanly causally identify the impact of, of trade policies. But they very well might be much more effective than everything you could invest in education. And so how do you think about kind of that example in specific and, and policy shifts as the thing that maybe development experts and practitioners should be focusing on? So I, I think that we should be, we should care about education, we should look at education, and I don't think looking at education means you shouldn't look at trade. And the techniques that you use to look at trade may well be different from the techniques that you use to look at education. I mean, this this is one of the things that just really annoys me about this debate. You know, there's uh, rhetoric that says, well, you, you've wasted all this time looking at, you know, small questions, i.e. questions in education and health, when you should have been looking at ports and the macro. Well, if you're a microeconomist, you look at microeconomics problems. And it, like, if you're a macroeconomist, don't go around blaming microeconomists that there isn't good macro in development. Go and do it yourself. I mean, I, I like, I'd love to read really good <laughs> macro papers. I'm not mainly a macroeconomist. Um, so, uh, and, and fortunately, the trade people are not influenced by that. They've just gone on and got on with some really interesting trade work. And that's great. And they, 
you know, there are actually elements of the story about trade that you could, would be susceptible to, you know, a good impact evaluation because it, you know, trade policy assumes that people change in response to uh, changes in prices. So, for example, you know, I have uh, worked um, with uh, Lorenzo Casabori, who's done some some really interesting work on how do farmers respond when you change prices. You can do. He did that in a randomized trial. So, you know, elements of the question you can take out and test in that way. But the basic point is there are all these really important questions in in development. Randomized trials, other impact evaluations are useful for answering some of them. They're not. They don't. They're not useful for answering any, all questions. But no tool ever is. So, so I want to shift us a little bit. Yeah. Um, you've spent quite a bit of time thinking about how to use this type of evidence to shape policy uh, mm-hmm. and change policymakers' minds. What do you find to be the hardest part about changing policymakers' minds with evidence? So. I can tell you what I think is how some people sort of how not to do it. <laughs> Lessons learned. <laughs> right. Which is if you think that changing policymakers' mind is about going up and presenting your study and walking away, that's not that doesn't work. Changing policy takes time. And it takes building up trust. You know, particularly policymakers in developing countries. People are coming up to them all the time and saying, you should do this. And they're like, yeah, right, and somebody's going to come in, you know, two hours later and say, I should do something else. What you have to do if you want to influence policy is first understand their problems. Like, don't go in and tell them the answers before you know what the problem is. They really invest in understanding what the problems are in an area, what the policymakers are worrying about, and then think about what evidence matches the problems they care about and the problems that you may have revealed from good descriptive data. And then have a good conversation with them about their problems, how that might, what evidence might be useful from elsewhere, how that maps onto the evidence that you have of what are the problems locally, uh, and then start thinking through what are practical implications for them. So it's a long-term process and trust is really important part of this. And, you know, trust, for example, that you have any idea about this country. Because if you walk in and give advice and they think that you don't know anything about their country, they are not going to listen to you. I mean, that's one of the uh, the challenges that we face in the International Rescue Committee is the fact that much of the evidence is obviously based in relatively stable places. I think mm-hmm. there are several thousand impact evaluations that have been done in the last 10, 15 years, but only probably around 100 or so in more fragile contexts. And you've written a little bit about how to uh, think about how to generalize mm-hmm. um, from particular studies. So I'd love you to expand more on that framework, but also perhaps also say, how can we increase the the range and uh, scale of research in fragile places mm-hmm. itself? Yeah. So I guess you, what, what you need to do is think through what is different because a place is fragile or what is dif- different and what is the same in this particular context that you're in. So it may be that children are at a very different place. So if it, a place has been very fragile for a very long time, then kids may you know, have been out of school for a very long time and therefore the challenge may be how do you get them back into school, say. But then there might be other elements that are very similar. Um, so the way children learn <laughs> 
uh, is actually quite similar across very, very different contexts um, in the sense of, you know, like at this point I made that you've got to be, you've got to teach where they are. Now, where they are may be really different depending on the context, but the overall lesson that, you know, you've got to teach where they are um, is going to be, I'm pretty confident given how many different places this has been tested, that's, that's going to be valid in a fragile context too. So the framework that you're talking about um, that I've used uh, to help me with this question is to think about, you've got to start by analyzing the local problems and you can learn something from other contexts, but that's really a local thing. You've got to understand what is the problem. Is it that kids are out of school? Is it that the teachers aren't, call it, you know, don't know what they don't know the subject? Is it that, um, you know, the curriculum's at the wrong level? Like what, analyzing the problem. Um, that needs local data. <laughs> the next set of things is these general lessons which are about hum how humans behave and how they respond to incentives and, you know, how we learn. And those are actually quite common across different contexts. And then the final piece is about implementation challenges. And that's going to be really different in fragile contexts. So that might be actually where you get the biggest difference is how you actually deliver that education or deliver that program might have to be different uh, because of fragility. So you can't rely on, you know, state provision or um, you don't have certain systems in place. So I guess it's thinking really hard about what's different, <laughs> but still learning from these general principles about how humans behave. So does that mean that the focus for research in fragile states should be on the delivery systems? Well, I think that was one of the things that is that would be useful, yes, is to analyse, is to do some research on what's different, how to... What are different methods of delivery, given that you can't do the standard delivery, potentially? Um, but there might be, you know, there might be other things that are at the general level that you think are specific to fragility. So again, I'm sort of sticking with education because we've been talking about it, so I'm gonna stick with that, that example. But, um, you know, do, I said most children <clears throat> learn in a similar way across contexts, but it's quite possible that a child who's traumatized might learn differently. Right? So that's something that would be a, a more general level, but it's something that we need to look at um, specifically to understand the fragile state context. So, you know, different children are traumatized in different ways in different contexts, but there might well be a general lesson there about is are there different ways to help children learn if they've been traumatized. And so we're going we're gonna to switch over to your role at Diffid in just a little bit. But I think one of the things that you have done a lot is collaborate between academics and policymakers mm -hmm. or practitioners. And I would love to get your sense of what you think academic, academics underestimate about policymakers, what's either relevant or valued to them, and vice versa, what you think policymakers underestimate about academics and what's valuable or um, important to them so that they can kind of work together more effectively. In other words, like, what are your three tips for this, for this crew? So I think, um, I think sometimes academics underestimate how much, uh, policymakers know of a certain, or may undervalue that knowledge, um, 
that, that policymakers may have because policymakers may use different language than the academics are used to hearing. Um, I mean, you see a really good academic at work, they will be listening hard to what a policymaker is saying and then putting it in their frameworks. So, uh, you know, they may talk about a problem in a way that kind of doesn't make sense to an academic of, um, but, but someone who's listening hard will say, ah, what they mean, you know, how I would say that is there, you know, there's an information failure or there's, um, you know, a collective action problem or, you know, this is a search model. So the policymakers aren't going to use that language, but they may, but they have a lot of richness of knowledge about the local context, which is really important and useful for academics to draw on. And, um, and the best academics, you know, who were good at working with policymakers are good at listening to that and kind of translating it into testable hypotheses uh, and models. Um, what I think the policymakers assume about academics is, you know, quote, they're interested in academic questions. You can't see, but I'm putting quotes around academics. <laughs> You know, an academic question is seen as a negative, right? That's an academic question is one that's not relevant. And actually, there are huge incentives on academics to work on questions that are policy relevant. Um, but they're very, what the incentives are is for them to answer these general questions. So they're not interested. No, it's true. They're not interested in testing your program mm -hmm. if your program, nobody else is doing anything and it couldn't scale and, you know. But why are they not interested in it? Because it's not going to replicate in lots of other places because it's not scalable. So those are actually policy relevant reasons that they're not interested in your program. So people might dismiss them as, well, they're not interested in learning about tweaks to my program. But the reason is that they're actually looking for something bigger. They don't want to test your program. They want to test something that could, you know, change the whole world. So actually, they are interested in policy stuff. They just, they want to work at a big scale. Um, so that's, you know, they're interested in answering these, you know, and you, you could think of an academic question as a generalizable question and therefore a more policy relevant question than anything else. And that's the thing that I've been really trying to, that's my translation role. <laughs> but having been a policymaker and an academic, that's, I think, the thing that people most miss about each other. Interesting. So tip one, listen better. Yes. <laughs> my mother told me that one. Um, and tip two, think about the generalizable question, which to me, I think the challenging part on the policymaker side, having straddled both sides of the house as well, is really making sure that everybody's focused on what the underlying idea is that we're trying to answer through the program, which I think speaks to the generalizable issue, yeah. right? So if we're running an employment program in for Syrian refugees in Jordan, it's not how do we necessarily increase the impact of this program specifically for this population right there right now. It's what are we learning about how to deliver employment programming that says something deeper about understanding how refugees engage in the market, what the marketplace is like in fragile states that we can then use to uh, replicate in other contexts. Yeah, to, to design better programs in the future, exactly. So 
you're not answering necessarily always the immediate question, but you are answering the policy-relevant question, but, but it might be a bit further in advance. Which, which is tough, I think, for a lot of people who are on the front line, because I think that there's... There's a sense that like one of the reasons that you're doing development work, and particularly in humanitarian work, right? You're you're there to solve the problems of this population, right? You're there for the you know immediate. And as soon as you know you come home after a long day, um, both you know kind of trying to provide social services, work through the institutions, operate in challenging environments, you're then in conversations about the broader, bigger idea. When in front of you, you see kind of the fires burning, and I think yes. it's I think it's one of the challenging parts. But of you, that. but you've got to make. I mean, from the researcher side, you've got to make. You've got to help people make that link between what the challenges they're facing and the questions that you're answering. If the people you're working with don't get that link, you, I mean, you might as well go home. This is something I feel really impassioned about is the implementers who are involved in working on impact evaluations are as much a part of delivering a high quality evaluation as the researchers. It's absolutely a partnership. And if only one part is in, part of that partnership is invested, it is not going to work. And you know, delivering a good, pro- good good research program is only partly in the hands of the academics. Uh, and I don't think we give enough um, credit to the implementing partners we work with who are, you know, absolutely fundamental to this whole, you know, revolution in, in credibility of evidence within the development world. So you're now chief economist at DFID. Yes. <laughs> Did you come in with a particular agenda or perspective, um, and have you developed one in your first uh, six months? I think it's now it now is, or are you still uh, in listening mode? So I came in in listening mode, but with one specific thing which I thought I would be able to contribute, which is you know a lot of what we've been talking about already, which is how do you take evidence and use it to improve programming um, because it is not. Uh, this completely simple process of saying this program was evaluated in this context, we ought to do it somewhere else. It's about taking the lessons, deriving general lessons from them, and then applying those general lessons to designing new programs. And that's a hard process to do. And it's something that I'd spent a lot of time doing. And so I felt like that was something I could potentially contribute here. So my You know, I came in with that objective of helping people on the front line in DFID use the evidence to design better programs uh, and be able to use the evidence more effectively. Now, I came here because actually, you know, I've always been incredibly impressed at how much DFID staff know about the evidence, how much they care about uh, good evidence. Uh, you know, they're one of the agencies in the world who's sort of been at the forefront of pushing uh, an evidence agenda. So it's certainly not, I'm certainly not coming in and, you know, introducing this idea at all. Like I come in with a certain amount of modesty on that. I think the specific area where I can potentially be helpful is doing this translation of how to use this evidence in a way that's not just about bringing one program you know, learning from one program, but how do you accumulate it into kind of more general lessons and then apply those general lessons? I mean, one of the things I've heard from DFID over the years is that uh, while DFID has pushed the evidence-based agenda incredibly hard over many, many years, it's also been on another big push, which is to get aid spending up to the target of 0.7%. And it's now done that. 
Uh, and that was challenging because sometimes you're having to force money out of the door, uh, which is sometimes in tension with being thoughtful and evidence-based. Now you're at that level and the 0.7% has been achieved. Um, to what extent does that give you the potential to take the evidence agenda on even further? So I guess I'd maybe slightly dispute that it was hard to get money out of the door. I mean, there's a lot of questions and... Um, I mean, there's a certain question about timing and, you know, the 0.7 introduces a certain amount of complications about getting the timing precise about, you know, when money goes out the door. But um, there's a huge need in development. Um, you know, we're all overwhelmed every day with all the things that we could contribute to. Um, I mean, I take your point that when resources get scarcer and scarcer, it forces you even more to think about value for money. Um, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis at the moment in a tight spending review and a, you know, tight fiscal climate and, you know, differed uh, spend not going up um, anything like as fast as it used to. There is a lot more need to, you know, think very, very carefully about value for money. And one of the interesting questions that obviously a chief economist will probably get into are the big questions about trade-offs between, say, spending in uh, low-income or middle-income places, fragile states, stable places, and also whether to spend on saving lives or improving girls' education. Um, I can imagine ministers turning to you going, how do I resolve that ethical dilemma um, and how do you place a, a weight on equity? So can you just say a little bit about you know, what happens when the minister walks through the door and goes, you know... <laughs> What's my answer to that very difficult question? Okay. It's not just about accounting, it's about ethics and norms. And, and, and by, by just to add into there, I think the, the translation function that you're getting at is that value for money provides a framework to start to think about these trade-offs. So if you could just kind of talk about really briefly what value for money is and the way Diffid thinks about it, and then kind of open the aperture to then think about how you use okay. it for decision-making, that'd be great. Okay, so value for money is... Um, is not, I should be careful in saying it, value for money is not just about, you know, penny pinching. It's about the most, the best way to improve value for money is to spend on things that are more effective, right? It's shifting money from programs that aren't effective as things that are. It's not about just, you know, doing what you were doing, but spending less to do it. Um, so the best way to look at value for money is really within a sector. So, you know, Within health is the easiest one. There's lots of different things you could spend money on in health, and you can look at impact evaluations that have been done to, to that show the number of years, disability-adjusted life years saved from this intervention versus some other. So, um, you know, malarial bed nets are fantastically cost-effective in that you, you know, save many years of, of life for... Um, for the money that you spend compared to, say, cancer treatment. Now, I won't, I'll, I'll push that's, that's the easy bit, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the easy bit. When you were talking about across between countries, I think the response is to say you've, you've got to do things a bit differently in different kinds of countries. So in a poor country, we're often, you know, giving money to fund some of these things, whether it's bed nets or um, anti-malarials, and there, you know, we very much focus on giving it on the, you know, on the most effective, the things for which the evidence suggests the most effective. In middle-income countries, 
It's not really about giving money so much. They're the cost-effective thing to do, the value-for-money thing to do, is to help that country spend their money more effectively. And that can be very high value for money. So a lot of developing countries spend, you know, most middle-income countries, their aid budget is tiny compared to what they're spending on poverty programs. So India spends a huge amount of money on health and education and anti-poverty programs. A lot of that money in middle-income countries is spent very ineffectively. It's not spent on the things that have the highest impact or cost per disability adjusted life year saved. So helping them, putting in a little bit of resource to help them spend that budget better is incredibly cost-effective. So that's how I think about the dilemma of do you spend it on the poorer countries or on the richer countries. We also use some analytics that check kind of the over... This doesn't determine where we spend all our money, but is a useful check is to say, is our money allocated to the poorest countries, to where the most poor people are, to the countries that are where you see biggest return to spend, that are kind of very overall metric in that if they grow, poverty declines. So there's some, there is actually some analytics behind how we allocate money to countries. That's not the only, you know, it's not like I churn out those numbers and that's exactly what happens. There's obviously a whole... Smoky you know, room behind it after well, that. Well, I mean, you know, for example, conflict isn't in there and we care about conflict and humanitarian mm-hmm. and, you know, you can't just churn it out of a computer. But, but there is some actually quite interesting and important analytics to help ministers think about that judgment about how to allocate resources across countries. So I think it's, it's, it's relatively clear how you can do things within one sector and also yes. the framework you've outlined for countries is, is helpful. But when someone says to you... Um, how much money should we spend on education? And let me give you a really concrete example. Um, in the humanitarian budget, 2% of humanitarian funding goes on education, um, despite the fact that uh, refugees are typically displaced for 10 years. Um, you might think that education is quite important. Now, if a minister was asking you for advice on, well, should we spend more money on education, more than 2%, given the long-term displacement that we find for children? Or... Should we continue to prioritise health, where the evidence is incredibly high, it might save lives? How do you even go about providing a, 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 a framework for that conversation? Let me also make this more And con- we had that exact conversation with our head of education, who was lobbying very hard for higher spending. Well, I was, let me make this even more concrete, right? So, like the International Rescue Committee, there's a number of humanitarian agencies who are very lucky to get individual donations to the organization that are not earmarked for health programming in South Sudan or education in the Central African Republic. And these organizations need to determine how to spend that money. Um, And we can choose health in South Sudan or education in the Central African Republic. And this is one of the metrics that we think about. So it's a question that gets asked consistently at multiple different levels. Yeah, and there's no easy answer to it. Um, I mean... The, one of the ways that you can try and look at it, it uh, this has all sorts of problems, but one of the ways you can look at it is to try and turn everything into a kind of a cost-benefit analysis, which where you look at the returns to education. Um, so if we invest in education, what are the what are the returns in terms of higher income? Basically, you have to put everything. If you're going to look across sectors, you have to put everything on the same metric. 
And implicitly, we are doing that all the time. We're implicitly yeah, making those choices. So yep. in a way, we could make that explicit and transparent. I sense yeah. a dissatisfaction with what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's just, it's not... It, turns out that's really how these decisions are made. Um, there's a lot of, there's some big confidence intervals around, uh, you know, the assumptions that you make. Um you know, I have gone through that process and looked at it for education to see, to see, for example, you know, to see what what would be cost effective in terms of, you know, an income return from education. It's you know that it, under reasonably reasonable assumptions, education has quite a, an important economic return. Um, but precisely whether whether that versus another sector is better. I, I actually think there's so much variation within a sector that you can't say health versus education. Like a really good effective education program is going to have a higher return than an ineffective health program and an, an if, and you know and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we haven't talked about the economic development programs, which are even harder to measure. But if, again, if you could change the policy in a country to really spur growth, you know, that would kind of blow everything else out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, but it's often hard to measure those. So That's the trade policy conversation we were having earlier. Yeah, it will. No, but like on trade policy, I think if you, if I really thought that there was prospect of really improving, um, you know, reducing a critical barrier to trade, I absolutely would put my effort onto that because I think the the returns are really, really big to get or, you know, or really able to change the business environment in a country so that uh, the, the private sector would flourish. The challenge is you often, it's hard to make those really big changes, but where there are windows of opportunity to change those, absolutely think there's a very high return to working on them, even though, the, again, the confidence interval around how big the effect is, is is hard. So I think I'm slightly ducking the um, comparisons across sectors, and I think there's actually a legitimate reason for me to duck it, which is there's such a variation in returns to what we do within a sector mm-hmm. that that's probably the easiest thing to work on. I look forward to you giving that to the minister next time she asks you. <laughs> um, can I just move on to a couple of final questions? One is, if you look at all the exciting innovative research that's around there now, and you must have had a great vantage point in your current job and your previous job, are there particular areas that you think that's really exciting that could change the way we, we think about uh, development? So one of the areas I, I wish we um, were doing more on, and I think there's a huge need to change what we're doing, is on mental health. So if you look at the difference between the burden of health or, um, and how much we invest in it, mental health is one of the very obvious you know, mismatches. Huge burden, very little spend. It's also the case that um, how we would do mental health in a developing country has got to be different from how we do it in the West. Like we just can't have, you know, a highly paid analyst for every person who's got who's been traumatized in a developing country. It's just not going to happen. We can't do that. So we really need some innovative thinking there. They have, you know, I've seen some interesting 
ideas about, you know, computer-based cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't know. I'm not an expert in there, but we really need, you know, the level of stress amongst young women um, because they have very little control over their lives in many countries is just extraordinarily high let alone working in post-conflict environments where, you know, a huge proportion of the population have post-traumatic stress. And we have no real ideas about how to address that at scale. It's a really important problem that I think needs a lot of research. Um, You know, I think we're starting to get into the understanding how to improve democracy. I think that's, and you know, political accountability. We tried accountability at, uh, you know, ad hoc, outside the state kind of ways, hasn't worked very well. Uh, let's make democracy work better. That's another exciting area. Many, you can, many, you many. supply that to the West right now. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Oh, uh, no comment. <laughs> um, as one other kind of wrap-up question, um, in some of the previous work, you've written on health a lot and how to incentivize investments by the private sector into areas where there's not investment, specifically for pharmaceuticals or vaccines. Um, and some of the mechanisms you've talked about are advanced purchasing commitments to help uh, ensure that pharmaceuticals can work in these areas. What are some of the lessons from thinking about financing in health for underserved populations that you now apply to development more broadly? So I think one of the takeaways from the advanced market commitment is we don't have enough investment in the in technologies that are appropriate to developing countries so people design innovation for the rich world and this is you know the mental health example is exactly that we we've designed a system that works for rich countries and not for poor countries and we don't have incentives for people to develop and innovate for resource-constrained environments. And the return to that investment is just huge. You know, advanced market commitments are one way to deal with that, but, you know, we've got to look at a a lot of different alternatives to that. The return to innovation um, is just, you you know, extraordinary, particularly in the health field. Um, Just people now are so much healthier at a lower level of income than they were 100 years ago, and that's because of health technologies. And mainly, they're just health technologies that have been developed for the rich world that happen to be okay for the poorer world, but we're missing so many technologies that would be appropriate for the local um, environment. Rachel Glenister, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur, Jelani Carter is our associate producer, and Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.